This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. About six hours into a hike in the high Andes. About 3,000 meters here. So... Air's getting a little bit thinner, bit of a shortage of breath, as you can hear. I'm looking out on an astonishing view, towering mountains on either side of me, down below me a valley, and in the bottom of that valley, a river, white water raging along, and I can just hear the sound of that water crashing along the rocks from all the way up here. It's hot when that sun comes out, but there's very heavy vegetation, so you're often in the shade and the temperature can really plunge. The guide has told us to be very careful of snakes. Apparently there's a, a brown snake, a black snake, and a red snake. And the guide said one of them is exceptionally poisonous. I've forgotten which one. So my policy has been so far to avoid all of them. I've spent my career visiting extraordinary historic sites. Some of the most famous and impressive on the planet. I've staggered in extreme heat through the Egyptian desert. I've wandered about on the ice in Antarctica, put my crampons on and walked across glaciers in the Alps and Alaska, but this is somewhere completely new to me, the Peruvian Andes. I'm following a trail taken by a remarkable man, Hiram Bingham, in 1911, the American explorer who, it said, inspired the whip-toting adventurer, <laughs> Indiana Jones, who I'm sure ignited my passion for history and archaeology as he did for many of the listeners of this podcast. In fact, very embarrassing, I'm wearing a Indiana Jones hat on this journey, my homage to him. But more importantly, in the real world, Bingham heard a rumour of a fabled lost city in the clouds that would reveal the power, the skill, the brilliance of the Inca, who once ruled over a vast empire that spanned this continent from the Amazon basin to the Pacific coast. He made his way through this dense foliage. He talks about the snakes, he talks about scaling near vertical cliffs, and I've seen plenty of those. But eventually he saw something completely remarkable. He came across a, a warren of stone walls. He had found the traces of this once mighty empire in a place where the earth meets the sky. It was, of course, Machu Picchu. Apparently I've got about two hours of this hike left and I cannot wait to see it for myself. You're listening to Dan Snow's History Hit. Over four episodes, I'm taking you to the Peruvian Andes. We're gonna follow in the footsteps of explorer Hiram Bingham. 
how he revealed this lost city to the world. The story shot across the wires. The National Geographic story when it came out was the entire issue, and it had these unbelievable centerfolds. We'll traverse the Urubamba Valley to trace the rise of the great Inca Empire, its rulers and domination of mountain, desert, and jungle. I'm going to dive into the incredible world of Inca religion, of oracles, astronomy, elaborate rituals, and of course, the practice of human sacrifice. Some of the cloth that had been covering the face kind of went to the side, and there I was looking into the face of Inca. How did the Inca become one of the most powerful empires on Earth? And how did it fall so spectacularly? This is my series, Machu Picchu, episode one, The Lost City. Machu Picchu is, well, one of the most famous, renowned sites of Inca civilization, and it's often revered, it often makes the list of one of the seven wonders of the modern world. It's half hidden by clouds in the so-called cloud forest. It's perched high in the Andes, and the sheer feat of its construction, its ambition, its sophistication, has awed people ever since it was rediscovered. First, there's the mystery of what exactly it is. No one can really agree. Machu Picchu was built under the instruction of one of the greatest of the Inca emperors, Pachacuti, 600 years ago. It's very high up in an environment that's not only very difficult to reach, but difficult to survive in. The altitude makes it hard to grow crops. The weather here is extreme and changeable. It's very, very hot and sunny now, but there's gray clouds swirling around the mountain peaks. Some say Machu Picchu was a palace. Some believe that there's a lost tomb of Pachacuti lying hidden somewhere within its walls, yet to be discovered. But more practically, how did the Inca, with no horses, no horsepower, no wheeled vehicles, build these incredible stone structures perched virtually on the summit of a mountain? Machu Picchu provides the best glimpse we have into the ingenuity, the brilliance, of the Inca Empire. That empire, at its peak, was the biggest empire in the history of the Americas before the arrival of the Europeans. It ruled over perhaps 10 million people or more and incorporated parts of the modern countries of Peru, Ecuador, Argentina, Chile, Bolivia, and Colombia. It was a multi-ethnic empire connected by thousands of miles of sophisticated road networks. For a couple of generations, it looked like it was a supernova, expanding at a meteoric rate and pulling in disparate people, lands, and cultures under its control. It was built through diplomacy, bribery, and a dose of military force. But a supernova can only expand so far before it collapses. And when the Spanish conquistadors arrived in 1531, hungry for treasure, the cracks were already showing. The empire was wounded from a terrible civil war. And it didn't take much for a few battle-hardened soldiers armed with modern weapons, armor, and horses to bring the empire down. Within just a few years, the Spanish had vanquished the Inca. There was one place the Spanish never found, protected by the cloud forest vegetation, the altitude, the difficult terrain. The Spanish never set eyes on Machu Picchu, 
and its mysteries and treasures lay virtually undisturbed for 400 years. Europeans and, and North Americans had begun exploring this part of South America in earnest in the mid-19th century, spurred on by myths, curiosity, and sometimes promises of untold wealth hidden in the jungle. Gentlemen explorers began to explore this region, looking for the remnants of the sophisticated civilizations that had existed here long before the Europeans arrived. Explorers like Desiree Charnay and Alfred Maudsley uncovered and publicised some of the most remarkable Maya and Aztec ruins in existence, discovering crucial evidence of the ways that these societies operated. These discoveries captured the imagination of Andrew Bingham. He had an early fascination with Latin America. He studied the region at UC Berkeley and then at Harvard before setting off to find something himself. When he first visited Peru in 1908, Bingham wrote of its snow-capped mountains, saying, They tempted me to go and see what lay beyond. In the ever-famous words of Rudyard Kipling, there was something hidden, something lost behind the ranges, lost and waiting for you. Go. Being here now myself, I can see why he became so enraptured, although it doesn't have quite the same romantic appeal of discovering lost cities. Certainly one of the most remarkable journeys I've ever been on. It's beautiful in terms of its landscape, its views, but you also stumble across Inca ruins all the way. It's the perfect day out, if like me, you love hiking and history. To tell the story of Hiram Bingham, I'm asking Christopher Heaney, he's the professor in Latin American studies at Penn State University. He's the author of Cradle of Gold, the story of Hiram Bingham and the search for Machu Picchu. Christopher, thanks so much for coming on. Listen, tell me about a very interesting and, and unusual early life and background. How does that affect him? Talk me through his sort of early biography. Hiram Bingham was born in 1875 in Honolulu, Hawaii. He was the son of uh, missionaries to Micronesia. And his grandfather, Hiram Bingham I, was the man who converted King Kamehameha of the Hawaiian people. Um, and so he had this very religious background, very stern, very austere, and very mission-driven that also presumed that what Americans were supposed to do was to go out into the world and convert, and I put this in quotes, the heathens, that's how they talked about it, to Christianity. Did he have a respect for what we might loosely call sort of indigenous societies, or was he pretty much imbued with this idea of civilizing advanced Christians of, of European descent kind of spreading across the world? I don't think he did at first. I think he was raised to believe that Christianity and American culture was the be-all, end-all. Um, his grandfather really criticized Native Hawaiian dance and storytelling and hula and indigenous religion. And so it wasn't really until later on after his time at college, he went to Yale University, where he developed a taste for the finer things in life. He really wanted to be part of a secret society, and he wanted to have the respect of uh, these Gilded Age classmates. Um, this is in the 1890s. And it wasn't until afterwards when he went on to visit Peru that he became interested in things that weren't European culture, which was a pretty important moment for him. Was exploring, I mean, was it in the, the zeitgeist? Was it in the water at the time? Was that what ambitious young men sought to do, to travel great swathes of the world and bring quote-unquote, discoveries to the attention of, of Western science? 
Absolutely. And in some ways, it was like a continuation of what his grandparents and parents had done, except that he had changed the values from religion to knowledge and nature. And so his first trip was, you know, a little bit of a stun, a little bit in the vein of um, Stanley and Livingston. Uh, He traveled from Venezuela to Colombia over the Andes Mountains to retrace the footsteps of Simon Bolivar and his important victory over the Spanish during the, the wars of independence. And really, it was a bit of a stunt. It was something to show that it could be done, which nobody had disputed in the past. And so simply he was showing that he himself could do it. He could get on a mule and go up over the, uh, the Paramo of Pispa. But uh, it really, he got the bug from that. And um, it diverted him from a life as a historian, which is what he was trained to be. He was a historian at Yale University towards something a little bit more out there. Theodore Roosevelt was one of his heroes. And so he really believed in the strenuous life and the proving of one's mettle as a white American male outside of one's comfort zone. And he also had the benefit of access to money. He married Alfreda Mitchell, who was the daughter of an heir to the Tiffany fortune. And with that money and the connections that he had from Yale, he was able to drum up interest from his friends and colleagues in supporting him doing these um, adventures into South America. So I guess unlike Stanley and Livingston and some other explorers, he has the kind of academic chops, right? I mean, he's doing a PhD. He's in Latin American history. He is a little bit more scholarly than some other sort of adventure seekers, thrill seekers of this period. That's right. When he finally got a job, he was hired at Yale University to be a lecturer in Latin American history, which was sort of a new field at the moment. History for, as it was taught in the United States and the academy back then was pretty much that of Europe and that of the United States. Other places didn't so much have history as sort of culture or folklore in the eyes of uh, white Americans. And so for him to become Latin American history really did make him different. And it opened him up to the experience that changed his life. On a chance trip to Peru in 1909, he was brought to a site named Choquequirao, which can be translated as the Cradle of Gold. And there, his Peruvian hosts told him that he was standing in the last city of the Incas. So back then, he would have immediately felt like there was fertile ground to make discoveries and make his name. Yeah, he realized that there were places in Peru that hadn't been excavated, that there were places in Peru that had a lot of local stories about them, and that there was a real advantage in connecting them to texts, to the chronicles, to older histories that some of which were just being rediscovered. And um, in some ways, this was not new. There are plenty of Peruvians doing this work before him. He really benefited from some Peruvian archivists and librarians who had gone into um, the collections to look at these last accounts of the Incas under Spanish rule. And what he did have was this sort of two-sided nature, that there is the interest in the, the archives and the sources, but also this really wandering spirit that had him on the ground. He was probably happiest in this time of his life when he was on a mule um, riding into the mountains. And that combination is what led to his success. What did he want to find? He wanted to have his name uh, in lights. <laughs> he wanted to have his name in the newspaper, in the New York Times, and in the mouths of his fellow classmates. And his letters and journal entries are a little bit either affecting, they're a little bit cringy in, in some ways, and that 
you see how much he is drawing from meeting a fellow classmate on the street and telling him what he's doing now as an explorer and seeing the fellow classmate get excited. But there's a part of him that really was motivated by um, the possibility of learning something new about Inca history. Well, he did deliver. What are some of the early successes? Yeah. When he came back from Chokikirao, that cradle of gold, he uh, looked at the chronicles and realized that the actual place that Manco Inca, the final Inca emperor who rebelled, had built was a place, one place named Vitcos, and then moving on, another place further still into the jungle named uh, Vilcabamba. Um, and this is where Manco Inca and his sons lived in quasi-independence for about 36 years until 1572. And so as to get to these last Inca sites, which weren't the heights of Inca rule, but really for us historians, really meaningful as in the place where Inca peoples tried to hold on and tried to survive and to resist. And they kept on with their original rituals and original religion. And so as to try and attain those places that Bingham started exploring. But he was pushed there in part by Peruvians who wrote these pamphlets about where these some of these places were, as well as a Peruvian archaeologist named Julio Teo, who sent Bingham this information and actually wanted to travel with him. But uh, Bingham declined. He thanked him for the information. But when Teo asked to be included on the expedition, Bingham said, no, thanks. This was, I think, an example of him trying to hold on to the glory and make sure that nobody else was there to share it. But uh, really, he struck gold in the sense that he was headed off towards the Vilcabamba region, where this kingdom where Manco Inca was. And along the way, he was talking to everybody he could, getting information on other sites in the area. And he ran into a couple people, a miner in Cusco, who told him to look for some fine ruins above a place named Huadquinia on the Urubamba River. And then in the town of Urubamba, a subprefect, a government official said, you know, there are some incredible ruins at a place named Huaynapichu and also some pretty good ruins at a place named Machu Picchu above Huaynapichu. And you should check that out as well, which was the lead that changed his life. It was pretty loose in some ways, I guess, right? You're gathering up kind of gossip and hearsay, I suppose, in Cusco, but he decided to go with it and he launched this expedition into the uh, into the jungle. The image we have of him is of this sort of Indiana Jones adjacent jungle adventurer. What would it have been like? Did he risk his life? How gnarly was it? Uh, it wasn't as bad as he made it out later on, uh, particularly the first half of the trip. <laughs> We've all been there, man. We've all been there, trust me. Uh, the first half of the trip, he was following a road, and the road to Huadquinia, uh, just below Machu Picchu, was recently cut out of the mountain with dynamite for the laying of a railroad track. And eventually, the railroad that uh, visitors to Machu Picchu take today follows the path that Bingham was taking. So for much of it, he was just riding along on his mule, and he had a very hard walk up the hill, up uh, several thousand feet from the river to Machu Picchu, in which he talks about getting hit in the head with branches and um, the wildlife threatening him and being afraid that he would put his hand on a snake. But really, this was a place that people had been living for hundreds and hundreds of years. And so if he kept to the paths, it wasn't so bad. And he um, had some excellent Peruvian guides. When he finally got to this place named Juanquina, there's a man on the river named Melchor Artiaga. And on July 24th, 1911, Artiaga leads Hiram Bingham 
up the mountain along with a Peruvian soldier that Bingham was traveling with for his protection up into the Saddleback Ridge between two peaks that we today know as Machu Picchu and Huayna Picchu. And there he's met by the families that were already living there, the Richarte family and the Alvarez family. And the son of the Richarte family, a young boy, leads Hiram Bingham into the ruins that he would come to call Machu Picchu. What would he have seen? What was uncovered? Much of the site uh, was covered in maleza or undergrowth that was in vines and roots that had grown over the fine palace structures over the last 300, 400 years. There was a main plaza surrounded by the Temple of the Three Windows, as Bingham called it, and two other temples that the families had cleared and they were farming in it. They were using Machu Picchu or Huayna Picchu as a farm, but there was still enough visible that Bingham couldn't grasp the architectural magnitude of the site. And also a number of features that hadn't really survived in other places. The boy led him up to the highest point in the site, to the Intihuatana, or the sometimes called the hitching post of the sun, although it was more like a gnomon that was used to trace the sun's movement across the sky. And Bingham realized that there wasn't one of these left anymore in the Inca empire, that the Spaniards had all broken the tops of these things off because they saw them as like objects of idolatry. And the other thing that the Charte boy led him to that I think is one of the most important features of the site and that immediately affected Bingham was um, the Temple of the Sun. And beneath that Temple of the Sun was what Bingham called the Royal Mausoleum, a cave that had a combination of finely carved stones, but also sculpted um, rock, the bedrock itself had been um, shaped to resemble stepped stairs, which reflects Inca understandings of the three worlds. And inside of it were niches um, in which Bingham presumed, and we think he was right, that the Inca and Andean mummies might have been placed when they visited Machu Picchu in the time of Pachacutec and afterwards. One of the most magical moments in the history of discovery. It's just extraordinary. And yet, he thought, this doesn't feel to me like the descriptions I've read about the last city of the Inca. So he kept going. He didn't get distracted. It's crazy. Yeah, he didn't sit down and take a minute. He was a strenuous guy. And he actually did reach the sites that we archaeologists and historians now know are um, Vitkos and Vilcabamba, the last cities of the Incas. He decided to go back to Machu Picchu um, because he knew that it was the most photogenic of places. And it was the place that he imagined that if he excavated, he could learn new things about the Incas. What was the effect of, of Bingham discovering Machu Picchu on the rest of the world? The first effect was in Peru, where the Peruvian knowledge that there was this North American wandering around Cusco, bumping into cities, began to make them very nervous about whether or not he would excavate as well. And so Bingham comes out of the countryside in 1911 and learns that the Peruvian government has announced very clearly that there's a new decree saying that uh, there can be no excavation and export of ruins without permission from the Peruvian government. And there had been some versions of those laws before, but this was a new hardening that showed a, a rise of a new sentiment in Peru that sites like this needed to be controlled and um, guarded by Peruvian people. When Bingham left Peru, though, his announcement in his much-beloved New York Times was as um, stellar as you can imagine. National Geographic decided to fund his second expedition, which was 
a massive expedition. And the idea was that this time Bingham wouldn't just come back with a story. He'd come back with reams of photographs of the cleared site of Machu Picchu, as well as, and this is what he promised Yale to get their funding, as well as a collection, artifacts and whatever else he might find at Machu Picchu itself. The story shot across the wires. The published um, version of the National Geographic story when it came out was the entire issue. And it had these unbelievable centerfolds of the site using these Kodak cameras. And uh, it really changed the course of National Geographic before and they hadn't really funded archaeological expeditions before. What, you mentioned artifacts. What was he finding? What did he find, as well as the beautiful, gigantic stone edifices? What did he find there? They found the tombs of the people who had worked at Machu Picchu, mostly. A few higher-class individuals, maybe priests or elites or priestesses. But what's truly affecting to me is that this wasn't a site where there was tremendous gold or silver to be found. The Spaniards really looted uh, the heck out of the Inca Empire. And what was important about its cult of and its religion of mummies was that they continued wearing their wealth in death. And so it was actually very obvious where the gold and silver was. It wasn't really buried. And so Bingham had some idea that maybe they'd find some sort of lost treasure. But when they started digging at the site itself amongst the temples, they really they didn't find anything. It was perhaps because it had been looted before. So what we're left with are the tombs of about 174 or more individuals that were in caves around the site who were the workers of Machu Picchu and whose objects are a little bit um, more modest and that tell us how people lived. That is one of the most marvelous things that I have ever seen. An almost unspoiled royal city on a mountaintop, bathed in sunshine. Look at that. Maybe it's because I'm tired, but I'm feeling very emotional. I think it's that you have to work so hard to get to this point that it feels so, so special. There are many things in life that are a bit of a disappointment when you've been looking forward to them for so long. And I can report that Machu Picchu is not one of them. I've never seen anything like it. You listen to Dan Snow's History. Don't go anywhere, there's more to come. This is After Dark, myths, misdeeds and the paranormal. The podcast that takes you to the shadiest corners of the past, unpicking history's spookiest, strangest and most sinister stories. I'm Maddie Pelling. And I'm Anthony Delaney. Join us every Monday and Thursday and we'll take a look at the darker side of history, from haunted pubs to Houdini to witch trials and arsenic-laced breakfasts. Follow After Dark, myths, misdeeds and the paranormal wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by History Hit. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful. Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And also remember when using messaging apps, they shrink the photos. You cannot print those out. You cannot blow them up. This is high quality imagery going to one of the most important people in your life. The Aura app is super easy to set up. It takes about two minutes and you're going to love it. There's free unlimited storage, add unlimited photos and videos, and invite as many people as you want to a frame. Right now, Aura has got a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code DANSNOW at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. So I'm walking through the ruins of Machu Picchu now. It isn't any less impressive close up. It's like an entire mountainside has been turned into a pyramid and on top, the most important religious and political centers. It's amazing how it has survived hundreds of years of neglect. Walls still standing, stairs still even. You still see irrigation channels carrying any rain that's fallen higher up on the mountainside down into the valley below. We think it was built sometime in the 15th century by the great Inca, the great emperor Pachacutec. I'm going to meet Bibiana Melsi, who has spent 20 years researching Inca sites right across Peru. Bibi, how are you Where are we standing now? Describe what we can see around us. Okay, so as far as I know, Machu Picchu has an urban section, a section of workshops where they would work with uh, textiles and ceramics. It also has, besides the urban section, the royal section of palaces. But there's also very important religious component. So you have several temples along the entire citadel. And you have the terraces, these amazing terraces that we use for agriculture, but not only for that. There were also structural terraces to support the weight. And those you can find at the bottom of the site. Why on earth did they build this city in the clouds? It's so high, it's so hard to reach. Okay, (laughs) so it might sound like a very easy question, but it's actually not. Because in archaeology and history, you always have different researchers trying to find out and discover. Incas did not have a written language, okay? So there is no way of knowing, like leave a record of this was used for this. But as far as we know, there are like two main theories. One is that it was like a royal palace built for Pachacutec, by Pachacutec, 
who was the great builder of the Incas, okay? So that is one theory. And the other one is that this place is very important administrative, political, and religious center that connects the Andes, the city of Cusco, which was the center of the world and the center of the empire of the Incas, with the Amazon. And you have so many roads that bring you here, more than 11 roads that are part of the entire Capacñan or the Inca Royal Road network. You have 11 entrances and they bring you from the Salcantay, which is a sacred mountain. They bring you from Cusco. They take you to the other side of the mountains and the river. So you have those theories. So you mentioned terraces, we've got urban areas, rural areas. What are the key sites in Machu Picchu? Well, some of the most fascinating and beautiful places is the Temple of the Sun. So if you come here, and it's the only construction that has a rounded wall, and that looks exactly, it's a replica of the Coricancha, which was the Temple of the Sun in Cusco. So those two rounded towers, very important. Then you also have the Temple of the Condor right behind me, which is absolutely beautiful with a different shape. Then you have this sacred plaza with a, with a tree in the middle. For me, the most fascinating place. Besides the sacred plaza that has the three windows and up there you can see the Intihuatana, they said that they could tie the sun and they could read the time with that Intihuatana. But right behind that is the quarry. And that's where the stones to build Machu Picchu came from. So people think that the stones were down there by the river, okay, maybe a hundred meters down below us. No, the stones were up here at the top of the mountain. How did they build the city on top of the mountain? They used different methods and they had hundreds of people building these places. We already know the method that they used to break down these stones. So what they did was basically percussion, you know, and that's where they would hammer them, one rock against the other, okay, to crack it. Then they would put like wedges, continue, open it in half, okay. The weather also helped because if you leave a very gigantic piece of stone, the heat, the cold, that also helps them crack, okay. And then they would use sand and water to fine and to polish, Okay, so those were their tools. Probably they used logs to pull them and to have traction. And in the construction of this site, they could have had thousands of people. So it looks very gray, doesn't it? There's a lot of exposed rock here. What would it have looked like in the 15th, 16th centuries? That is one of the most fascinating things I learned as a journalist when I was doing reporting, that When you see this place, you don't imagine, you know, how it really looked. But there is evidence in some places in the workshops that you see, oh my God, this is like a little bit yellowish, ochre, and then there's this part that is reddish. It was covered, some sections, not all, and painted in a color, in a beautiful golden-like, mustard-like color or reddish. So just imagine in this mountaintop surrounded by green, you know, uh, lush Amazon cloud forest and then these buildings that are yellow and bright red. 
So I've just hiked the Inca Trail. I came over the crest of the mountain. I walked to the Sun Gate. The view is obviously breathtaking. When Bingham found it, it was covered in vegetation. It took him days to reach. And he therefore claimed to rediscover it. But locals knew about it, didn't they? And were even spending time here. Well, here in Bingham saying that he discovered it, what we say now here in Peru is that he revealed it to the world. All the people that lived around it knew of its existence. And now it has been discovered that there is evidence, even in maps, where Machu Picchu appears. You know, maps from the 1800s, maps from the 1700s, mentions of this place. Not only was Bingham not the first person to step foot into Machu Picchu, it looks like he wasn't even the first Westerner to turn up at the ruins. In 1978, 50 years after Bingham first set eyes on Machu Picchu, a researcher named Paolo Greer discovered some clandestine documents which shed light on a dark chapter in the monument's history. The documents showed the site had been looted in the 19th century, seemingly with the permission of the Peruvian government. Greer discovered a map with the two peaks clearly marked on them as Huayna Picchu and Machu Picchu, drawn by a German prospector named Augusto Burns in 1874. He then found a booklet which indicated Burns, who was in Peru to trade precious metals and wood, had looted Machu Picchu, apparently with the blessing of Peruvian officials, and sold the artifact to European galleries and museums. These documents state that Burns purchased 25 kilometers of land along the river in the Sacred Valley in 1867, and set up a sawmill, which Bingham notes seeing in his expedition diary. But by 1881, he'd abandoned his logging, and he'd set up a company called the Inca's Gold and Silver Mining Company. But if you look at the geology of this region, the only thing to mine is granite. The gold and silver were obviously coming from elsewhere. Abandoning all pretense, he went on to publish a pamphlet, amazingly setting out his intention to raid the citadel of the Inca. A separate letter from the same year shows that Burns received permission from the Peruvian president to loot Inca tombs. Anything he found was his to take away, but the government wanted 10% of the spoils. In his private letters, Burns himself wrote that Machu Picchu will undoubtedly contain objects of great value and form part of those treasures of the Incas. Burns may not have been the first or only treasure hunter to covet the riches of Machu Picchu, but judging from these documents, he was certainly the most open about his intentions. What's the significance of gold for the Inca? We have to understand that for them, gold was precious, not because of the value of it, but it was because it represented the sun, which was a god to them, and their main leader, the Inca, the son of the sun. So he also had to have this medal for him in his different, you know, jewelry. So that was very important, representation of one of the most important gods. So there were several Inca leaders along their history. The first one being Manco Capac, and the last one being Atahualpa, okay, when the Spanish came. While I've been here in Peru learning about the Inca, I'm really beginning to understand that it's just really difficult, more so than other periods, I think, to be certain about what anything is. There are just so many different theories and ideas about the Inca, their ruins, their artifacts. This definitely goes for Machu Picchu itself, 
Scholars and the guides differ over what the place was actually built for. Some have told me it's centre of administration, others that it was a kind of grand summer palace for the great Inca leader who built it, Pachacuti. Now there's certainly evidence that Pachacuti did spend time in Machu Picchu. I've seen what seemed to be his royal quarters. The ruins show us that there was only one toilet in Machu Picchu. It must have been Pachacuti's, and rightly so. He was one of the most powerful and successful Inca rulers. Let the man have his own bathroom. He was recognized as the greatest builder in the entire empire. The sun is rising in Cusco. I've been up pounding the mean streets since before dawn. Jet lag and the Inca is a powerful combination to get you out of bed. Now the town's waking up and people are streaming through the streets, kids going to school passing by the massive edifices of Spanish colonial rule built on top of Inca foundations that you can still see. Cusco's built in a high alpine valley. I'm about 3,300 meters now, which is twice the height of Britain's highest point. I'm in the historic center now, and there's so much Spanish colonial building from the 16th and 17th centuries, towering churches, colonnaded arcades, beautiful balconies overhanging the streets. And the streets have got great names, like Ataud, meaning coffin, and the Siete Calebras, the Seven Serpents. You're immediately struck here by the fusion, I suppose is the right word, between two mighty empires, that of the Inca and that of the Spanish, who conquered it and replaced it. Before the Spanish arrived here in 1531, Cusco was the center, the beating heart of the Inca Empire. It was the place that bound together their territories, the east, west, north, and south. It was overseen by the Sapa Inca, the sole ruler or paramount leader. This emperor embodied all the dimensions of leadership. He was a political leader. He was a military commander, but he was also their spiritual figurehead and he made sweeping economic decisions as well. Although he was uh, obviously human, he presented himself as a divine, as a mythical figure. He transcended the ordinary. He only communicated through intermediaries. Anyone who dared to look him directly in the eye could be sentenced to death for their disobedience. The idea was that he would be a charismatic leader who would be a kind of benevolent dictator. The Inca believed he was descendant of their most important deity, Inti, the sun god, making the Sapa Inca a semi-divine person living on Earth. I've walked now stand in the shadow of probably the greatest of all the Sapa Inca, the ninth emperor, Pachacutec. He came to power right here in Cusco in 1438. This is a hell of a statue I'm looking up at, a bronze statue, nearly 40 foot tall, atop a stone tower. Uh, Pachacutec's arms and head held aloft wide towards the heavens, giving a sense of him acting as an intermediary between the divine and the human. And I think he's emphasising the Inca's deep connection to the sky. They're fascinated by the stars, the cosmos, their buildings were often aligned to celestial movements, and they believed that everything in the universe existed in a state of interdependence. And although the scholarship is still in flux, we think it was really Pachacutec who took Cusco from being a small settlement 
a city-state and turned it into the imperial capital. The legends say that in 1438, Cusco was attacked by the Chanca tribe. Now, this is really the, the nemesis of the Inca. The Sapa Inca was very cocha, and he was Pachacutec's father, and he fled the city, and he left it open to the attacking forces. But it was Pachacutec, then a prince. He stayed behind and valiantly led a rebellion. He crushed the Chanca. He saved Cusco. That's when he earned his title, his nickname, which was Pachacutec, which means Earth Shatterer, which is just a considerably better nickname than Snowy, which is how I was known at his age. He changed everything about the Inca. He changed their fate. He carved out an empire. From this homeland around Cusco, they expanded west across the mountains to what is now the coast of Chile and Peru, south into parts of Argentina, the Pampas, east into the jungles of the Amazon basin, and north into what is now Ecuador and even Colombia. And as far as big empires go, this was not a particularly bloody process. There was violence, of course, but he employed a system of carrot and stick. He convinced tribes and other peoples to submit, to buy in to the idea of an Inca empire. And in the next episode, we're going to trace that process, the rise of the Inca empire, and the ingenuity of how they went about it. They bribed, they enticed, and that explains why they were able to take so much power over so great an area so rapidly and with seemingly so little resistance. And in the next episode, we're going to be discovering what artefacts were found at Machu Picchu by Bingham and his team and learn what they revealed about the Incas, how they lived, how they survived this very hostile environment, what their belief system was like, how unlike it was to our own, how they connected to the cosmos and the seasons, as well as learn about their elaborate rituals and practices. You've been listening to Dan Snow's History. This episode was written and produced by Mariana De Forge and edited by Dougal Patmore. And here, as if it was planned, I'm entering the main square now. And there seems to be a brass band playing. I'm going to check it out. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. 
Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us, and you'll be doing us a big favor. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe as a special gift. You can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.